Good day, everybody in Radio Land. Welcome to Speak Free Radio, simulcasting on Eurofolk Radio. And we're going to start a series, Michael and I, on the Septuagint versus the Masoretic text with the prominence focused on the errors of the Masoretic text. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing like, good. It's uh, in a, right. as I said, a frozen Sweden. It's like 14 degree Fahrenheit here now, so it's a bit chilly here now. Okay, right. Well, oh, fair. 14 de- really? 14 Fahrenheit. Oh, you're saying fire Fahrenheit? Is yeah, I said Fahrenheit a- because make it easy for the American listeners to to understand okay. when it's uh, 14 degree Fahrenheit or minus 10 degrees Celsius. Yeah, I can see the icicles on your ears. <laughs> that's got to be that's got to be pretty cold. Well, it's been a balmy sixty degrees here in Harrison. It's been great weather, and uh, so uh, welcome everybody. Uh, this series about the Masoretic text and the Septuagint, extremely important information for all Christians to know. Let me just uh, start out, give it a little bit of um, introduction here. Because I've done a lot of study on the comparison of the two texts. And let me just point out right from the get-go that the Septuagint is the Greek version. It was composed by 70 or 72, depending on which source you uh, – I'm, I'm leaning towards 72, actually. Judahite scribes, okay, and so some of the material we're going to be accessing falsely – it portrays falsely uses the word Jew instead of Judahite, and so we 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 constantly have to correct a lot of these theologians. Nevertheless, the points they make about the Septuagint versus the Masoretic texts are always excellent. Okay, and uh, we're uh, we're try- we're trying to sift through the problems of the King James version, and of course all other versions that are based on it or copy from it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the basic problem is that the Masoretic text was composed by rabbis, rabbis, rabbis who hated the Christians, who hated the, uh, the Septuagint, who hated they're the descendants of the ones who murdered Jesus Christ, etc., etc. And the basic problem with the Masoretic text is what it was composed in opposition to the Christian use of the Septuagint. And the Christians were using the Septuagint in their arguments against the Jews, and the Jews could not counter their arguments at all. So this is why the rabbis began the creation of the Masoretic text with their vowel points, and also not just vowel points, but uh, rhyme and meter points. So they added all kinds of gobbledygook to the ancient Hebrew manuscript, which they had possession of because the Christians, well, Christian Israelites, did not have access to the Hebrew documents. Uh, Herod made sure that only the Pharisees, the Edomite Pharisees, had access to those documents. So the Christians were at a disadvantage. But nevertheless, the differences between the Septuagint and the Masoretic are, are in many cases, very profound and uh, put the Masoretic text to shame. The major problem, though, in Christianity is the vast majority of Christians, especially the pastors, are totally confused about which is better. And, you know, let me ask you a question. Which do you think is better, the original document composed by Judahites 
around 282 BC, or a document that has been doctored by rabbis? Um, if you ask me that are wise to those questions that know that the Jews are no good when it comes to scriptures, I would say ultra term number one. But yeah. if you ask a Judeo Christian pastor, he probably say, mm, doesn't matter. I don't think he, he wouldn't he wouldn't really see the any difference. I think he thinks no. So that's if you are wise to the question of the of yeah. the Jews, how they have perverted the text, then you know of course it is the ultra term number one. Yeah. So uh, and we know the Jews have been perverting our DNA through uh, attempting us to get uh, involved in race mixing and, and all kinds of oh well uh, in fact uh, uh, there's an interesting passage in Josephus where Josephus says that part of Cain's sin it wasn't just that Yahweh rejected Cain's offering but Josephus says that Cain forced the ground and uh, used uh, artificiality in producing the crops that he offered to Yahweh. So we see that their hybridization began with Cain. Uh, oh, actually, sorry. No, it began with Nakash, who hybridized uh, by having sex with Eve, created a hybrid offspring named Cain, right? So this all impinges on the proper understanding of Genesis 3.15, and as we discussed last weekend on Voice of Christian Israel, telegony now features in the discussion here because if Mary had had a previous relationship, with, let's say, with Joseph or some other man, telegony, the evidence is clear now that whenever a woman has sex with a man, there are remnants of his DNA floating around in her blood, in her uterus, uh, other parts of her body, and uh, a woman who has multiple sex partners, therefore, is carrying the DNA of many, many males, okay? And uh, the only thing I can think of to counteract this naturally is the fact that every seven years, our bodies regenerate itself okay regenerate themselves so that all of your cells in your body get swapped out every seven years that's another instance uh okay all right so uh, uh, michael can you i don't know if you can uh mute your mic just a little bit because it's picking up your breathing if you can mute it just a little bit and uh so what i was going to say if mary had had a previous male encounter, which is extremely unlikely because Israelite women were sequestered. They were sheltered by their families because in the ancient world and still parts of the world today, even uh, the wife has to be a virgin. Okay. And in fact, in uh, Japan and other countries, they go to the extent because I don't know how, whether they have a doctor examine her, uh, uh, what's what's the word? Uh, I'm trying to think of the metal word. <laughs> Sorry, the medical term for it. But uh, the, there's the hymen. That's what it is. The hymen uh, can be searched out by a doctor, right? And in Japan, a woman who think who wants to get married and is expected to be a virgin could, will actually have a surgical implant to simulate a hymen just in case somebody wants to check, right? So this is an extremely important subject in the ancient world, and because of telegony, it's an important subject now. So 
women, our women especially, white women, need to keep the numbers of partners they have down. I think I mentioned the case of Dinah Shore last weekend on Voice of Christian Israel where we talked about this subject, that she gave birth to a black baby. And her husband, and of course she was Jewish, so anything's possible with a Jewish woman. Uh, and she swore up and down. And her husband accused her of being unfaithful to her. And she said, no, no, I didn't do it, right? But nevertheless, she gave birth to a black baby. Well, telegony explains that. At least it's an alternative explanation for, for something like that. So that's why in the case of Mary, if she had had a previous male uh, sire and I don't think it even has to be a, result in a child. If it results in a pregnancy, and it can even result from having sex with a man because the egg can implant itself into the uterus and uh, it, without uh, producing a baby. So she's infected, quote unquote, infected by every male that she has sex with. That's very important to know. And you know, I think also, the feminist movement, and there, there's a real surge of videos uh, all over the place by women who are dissatisfied with, you know, the the pill because the pill is actually dangerous. It's very detrimental to the health of the woman who takes the pill because it's, you know, big pharma meds you're taking instead of being natural, and so every, everything is pointing to a re- rejection of big pharma techniques, but the liberal women have fallen for this liberal, uh, this medical pharmacia hook, line, and sinker, and they're they're really regretting a lot of the decisions they have made sleeping around because, let's face it, for I, I guess it's ingrained in most men that they prefer to have a virgin, uh, although, you know, uh, remarrying a previously married woman is not out of the question, but you have to consider telegony as part of the equation here, okay? You have to consider it. So that's why we're considering the virgin birth this morning. The article is uh, from the Agape Bible Study in defense of the Old Testament prophecy of the virgin birth. And I'll just uh, quote Matthew here. All And all this took place to fulfill what Yahweh had said through the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. That's Matthew 1, to 23. Now, if Mary had had a previous engagement with a male, let's say even Joseph, well, then Joseph's DNA would be part of the equation. But we know from the uh, the witness of Ron Wyatt, when he uh, got the blood off the top of the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, which is still buried there underneath the underneath Calvary, he took that blood to a Jewish lab, and the Jewish lab technician said, "Hey, wait a minute! This blood only has twenty four chromosomes, <laughs> but a, a typical virgin or typical birth." Every child has 24, 20, uh, sorry, 46, 23 from the mother and 23 from the father, with the father contributing the Y chromosome, which will determine whether it's a boy or a girl. So in the case of Yahshua Messiah, he had 23 chromosomes from Mary, unpolluted because she was a virgin, 
and one chromosome from the Holy Spirit, namely a Y chromosome. Otherwise, he could not have been born a male. All right. This is very interesting stuff, folks. It, it's talk, we're talking about science. We're talking about the Bible. We're talking about racial integration. We're talking about hybridization, folks. That's what we're talking about. Back to you. Yeah, thank you. And as I said, this with um, telegamy, it also gives again why the Bible is so is so true in in the modern modern lives because it will also it ruins the women's day if they are as you say. I've seen studies that shows that if if women are more than one two already after two three, okay. their chances to having a long term relationships is going down very fast. It is not just a uh, uh, it's a it's a downward goes very fast downward. Yeah, uh, so downward that is, spiral, right? Yeah, yeah, and very sharp. It is not like oh, it's just um, that um, that the rate of this goes down very like this. No, it goes down very fast. So yeah. that is also it shows that that is also one of the attacks on the family. This shows also attacks on the families because today how many oh, keeps yeah. together a long time? Not so many. And all those applications that people use, you know, those Tinder, the other one, I don't remember the name on them. They are only for hookup culture. That's only it's only here because they are created by Jewish minds. So they they will right. be. Um, they will only promote this kind of stuff, and yeah. it yeah, ruins yeah. The, and it ruins the women. It's yeah, more, sure. I think, it, it's more detrimental for them, I think, because uh, uh, men can sure. maybe sure. handle a bit better, but the, but for the women, it's detrimental for them. It is certainly detrimental, and the, the interesting thing that I've watched some of these videos of women who are dissatisfied with their lives post-feminism. Most of these women now are post-feminist, so they've gone into this liberal Jewish lifestyle of sleeping around, okay? And now they reach the age of 30, which is like, well, it's 28 is every seventh year is 28, right? So, and they, I don't think that their uh, their blood has been cleansed through this seven-year process. Uh, it's apoptosis. That's part of the process where your cells are programmed to die and to be replaced by new cells. That's part of the natural process that Yahweh has created for us. That, that actually keeps us young. That actually keeps us young. And cancer is actually when your cells don't die, they keep on living and reproducing out of control, and that's called cancer. All right? So these women who now you know, have been sleeping around and now want to get married to a single man, right, they find that, well, they've, they're, they've set their expectations too high, and they say, okay, now, I'm, okay, I'm done sleeping around. Now I want to marry a rich guy, <laughs> right? <laughs> but, but, there's only, but there's only so many rich guys to go around. And so these ex-feminists are now very miserable because they don't have a personal life anymore. It's yeah. gone. It's, it's gone. Over. Yes, yeah. and as, as you say also, and then and then they are not willing to to what to say using the word lower their standard to think yeah, they are sure. they are worth so much more. No, they're not. Come yeah, on, yeah. they have to work on themselves. Also, they cannot get expecting to get up just because of a nice looking face because that's what they have used to have before they turn to thirty. But then when they're thirty, then then the guys know hmm, there's always someone that is younger, and that's yeah. something that women hate. Yeah, but absolutely. that's they don't like that to realize yeah. that it's always someone that is younger. But hey, don't work on your 
on yourself instead. Learn how to cook. Learn learn those traits instead. Learn good traits, and then yeah. you will you will be a very godly woman, and that that's very attractive. Then oh, but, godly. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that doesn't exist too much today. I must be a bit yeah. honest. I've not seen many. Yeah, yeah right. now I'm asking too much, I guess. <laughs> All right. So, uh, so this study about the virgin birth really impinges upon what what in the world is going on and what the Jews are trying to do to us, right? All right, take it over. Okay. okay. So now we start up with the article in defense of the Old Testament prophecy of the virgin birth. Um, and first is a quote. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which mean God with us. And this is from Matthew 1 verses 22 to 23. And this was also God with us. Wasn't that what the German yes. soldier had on their belt? Yes. When they invaded Russia. Gott mit uns. Yeah. Very popular German expression. Gott mit uns. There, okay. Yes. So, in the biblical passage above, St. Matthew is quoting from the Old Testament's book of the prophet Isaiah. It is a quote from the quote sign and the quote Isaiah gave to King Ahas in Isaiah 7 verses 14. The Greek Septuagint translation in use during Jesus' lifetime translates the Hebrew word ha alma into the Greek as quote the virgin and unquote using the Greek word uh, parathenos since the right, okay. Christian era. Well, I have a quick comment here. So, so it includes the definite article, the, the virgin, the virgin, meaning a very specific woman, not just any virgin, but that virgin right there, Mary, Miriam, that virgin. And parthenos is a term used scientifically, uh, parthogenesis, parthenogenesis, meaning uh, there's there's been documented cases of women giving birth to babies without having had sex with a man. Okay, that's called parthenogenesis. Well, w w referring back to virginity, virginity, right? Okay, there are documented cases of that happening. Nobody knows how that happens, but it has been documented. Back to you. I know someone that knows how it did happen. Yahweh did know. Really? Don't yeah, you think you know? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we know. Yeah, the Bible you know. says so. Yeah, he know. <laughs> right? But the, the Jews don't believe in the Bible, Old or New Testament. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Since the Christian era, Jewish scholars have maintained that the Hebrew word Alma does not mean, quote, virgin, and unquote, but instead refers to a young woman recently married. Oh, now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Okay. A uh, young woman not necessarily married. Uh, so the, the Bible study here is wrong. It, it simply means young woman. Okay. That has nothing to do with marriage. All right, back to you. Yeah, but it was Jewish scholars. I guess they don't want to have it the word virgin. So, of course, they want to get rid of that one. Yeah, yeah. And uh, actually, you know, we'll, we'll be talking about Rebecca very shortly. Okay, back to you. So, the Septuagint translation of this Hebrew word as, quote, virgin, and unquote. However, it's an important witness to an early Jewish interpretation of okay, now, this word. Yeah. Okay, so Jewish, to the extent that the Jews comment on the Bible... All right, and uh, some of these commentators falsely identify Jews with Judah. 
and Israel. You know, so we have to keep that in mind as we read along. However, uh, there, it, it, I think it's interesting what he says. That originally, the Masoretes did accept the the translation as virgin, but then they changed their minds later on, which is as more proof of the Jews tampering with the Old Testament Hebrew. Okay, very important. Okay. Then I continue. So, yeah. uh, of the word as, quote, virgin, end of quote, uh, a trans, um, translation accepted by St. Matthew and applied to the virgin birth of the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. According to Christian traditions, St. Matthew was a Levite too, because of his temple education, understood how to both read and write Hebrew. In using the prophecy from Isaiah, he clearly understood that the interpretation of the prophetic words, quote, ha alma, and the quote in Isaiah. Okay, so they're saying that the definite article is already there in the Hebrew, okay, which means you're talking about there will be a woman, the virgin, selected by you know who, Yahweh, <laughs> okay, for the virgin birth. Isaiah yep. seven fourteen. Okay, uh, so I'm gonna dial up some of these verses here where the word Alma appears. So please continue. Yes. Um, so, and this was from Isaiah 7, verse 14, to refer to the sign of, quote, the virgin, end unquote, and the mir- miraculous birth of the virgin son, since it links the prophetic utterance of Mary of Nazareth and Jesus' virgin birth in Matthew 1, verses 23. In the book Queen Mother, a biblical theology of Mary's queenship. Author Edward Sree notes on page 140 that the Hebrew word Alma is used nine times in the Old Testament. However, he does not list these passages. The references to Alma I found here. Okay. Now here, it's obvious uh, that uh, this author is Catholic. I'm not sure if the uh, site is Catholic, but uh, only... The Catholics would refer to Mary as a queen. <laughs> okay. All right. So, but here, it's good. They have links here. So Genesis twenty-four, forty-three, is, While I stand here at the spring, if I say to a young woman who comes out to draw water, please give me a little water from your jug. Okay. This is the episode where Abraham has sent to Nahor, back to the to Mesopotamia for a bride for Isaac. And so verse 44, and she answers, drink, and I will draw water for your camels too. Then she is the woman to whom Yahweh has decided upon for my master's son. So he was told, if a woman appears who will draw water for him, that's a sign from Yahweh. Verse 45. I had scarcely finished saying this to myself. He was thinking these words to myself, or Yahweh was putting these thoughts in his mind, when Rebekah came out with a jug on her shoulder. Glory be! After she went down to the spring and drew water, I said to her, Please let me have a drink. She quickly lowered the jug she was carrying and said, Drink, and I will water your camels. Two. So I drank, and she watered the camels also. When I asked her, whose daughter are you? She answered, the daughter of Bethuel, son of Nahor, born to Nahor by Milcah. So I put the ring on her nose, 
I missed that the last time I read that. <laughs> the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her wrists. Then I knelt and bowed down to Yahweh, blessing Yahweh, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me to on the right road to obtain the daughter of my master's kinsman. Underline the word kinsman for his son. Okay? Very, very important episode here. Yahweh chose Rebecca as he chose Mary, as he chose Sarah and and Hagar and Keturah also. No doubt about it. Back to you. Oh, yeah. actually, yeah. yeah I tell you, why don't we alternate these uh, these verses here? Because we definitely go, need to go into these. Now you disappeared. I don't know. I don't hear you. Uh huh. Do you hear me? You lost him after being. Now you're back. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. uh, I don't know what happened. Okay. Yeah. You froze. Okay, my skin. All right. Yeah, so let's alternate the verses because it's very important to discuss and, and read about Alma and then, of course, uh, Parthenos as we get into the Septuagint. Back to you. Okay. So do you want me now to read from Exodus uh, verses um, uh, 2 verses 8? Yes. Yes. Uh, which translation? Well, should I use the one oh, that, well, the scriptures or should we use King James? Uh, well, you can click on the link. And uh, you know, read it from there, well, unless okay. you want to read it from your text. Yeah, okay. I will just get my mouse there. Okay. Um, Exodus two eight, Catholic. Yeah, Catholic bishop. So this seems to be a Catholic. Catholic. Yeah. Okay. okay. So here is number verse number eight. Pharaoh's daughter answered her, "Quote, go." And quote. So the young woman went and called the child's own mother. Uh, should I read on or just that? Yeah. No, uh, no, just uh, yeah, re- give us the context. Yeah. Uh, Pharaoh's daughter said to her, quote, Take this child and nurse him for me, and I will pay your wages. End quote. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, for she said, quote, I drew him out of the water. End quote. Okay, so well, I, where is the young, where does it say Alma, young maiden? It's in the first, uh, uh, two eight. yeah, it is the, in 2.8, yeah. Okay, all right, so again, now n- nothing suggesting that the woman is a virgin, but however, as we just talked about ancient culture, it was ve- extremely rare, except among the Canaanites, of course, and uh, you know the paganized cultures, but among the Israelites, the, the the bride had to be a virgin unless she was previous to, and uh, you know the, uh, the the right of uh, uh, you know, when uh, the husband dies, her her brother or next of kin is supposed to uh, assume, uh, marry, remarry her, and so uh, and give the subsequent offspring count as the the offspring of the previous husband. Now, that may have something to do with telegony also, okay? 
All right. So Isaiah, and, go ahead. And by the way, when you're reading Exodus um, 2 8 in uh, KJV, they use the word maid instead of young girl. Okay. So they have a, another word. That is a bit better word, I think, than what you have in then this Catholic Bible they refers to. Right. And the, the scripture uses the word young woman. Yes. And they have a footnote to say, see explanatory notes, maiden. Yes. Okay. So this is now. Oh, uh, okay. Isaiah. Oh, this is Isaiah seven fourteen. Okay. So, the, depending on which translation you have, and I'm just going to read it from what they have here. And again, Yahweh spoke to Ahaz, ask for a sign from Yahweh your God. Let it be deep as Sheol, or high as the sky, as deep as the, as hell, or as high as heaven. But Ahaz answered, I will not ask. I will not tempt Yahweh. Then he said, listen, house of David, is it not enough that you weary human beings? Must you also weary my God? Therefore, Yahweh himself will give you a sign. This is verse 14. The young woman pregnant and about to bear a son shall name him Emmanuel. So this is clearly a prophecy of Messiah because he was given that name by Matthew. Okay, so here it is predicted. All right. So uh, take the next one, please. Yeah, so I read from uh, Song of um, Song of Songs, but I read from uh, ver- uh, chapter one, verses two, and onward. Okay. Uh, but I read from my. I pick up my eastward and read from that one. Okay. Uh, Let him kiss me with the kisses uh-huh. of his mouth, for you, carnal love, are better than wine. Uh, for fragrance, your oil are good. Your name is oil uh, pured forth. Therefore, the young woman loves you. And here's again a footnote to yes. say that this the word is maiden. I can I can read on some more verses. Yes. Draw me. We run after you. The sovereign has brought me into his inner rooms. We exalt and rejoice in you. We praise your carnal love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. I'm dark but lovely. O oh, daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of cedar, like the curtains of um, Shalomu. Do not look upon me, because I am dark, because the sun has tamed me. My mother's son okay. were displeased she, with me. She, she got a tan. <laughs> she was out in the sun, right? It was common in the South of America before the Civil War that the women of the South never worked outside. So they never got tan, okay? So And uh, only the men went outside to work and ride horses and do farming and that sort of stuff. And, but the women did not do that. In fact, uh, what's, uh, the Jefferson Davis's wife, uh, Varuna, was actually raised in the north, and she got used to doing gardening and planting and, and reaping vegetables and stuff like that. And when she became Jefferson Davis's wife, the the women of Richmond, Virginia, looked down at her because they saw her digging around in the garden. What are you doing? You're a woman. You're not supposed to work, <laughs> right? Okay, that's the, that's the culture of the South before the Civil War. All right, back to you. Thank you. So they made me uh, the keeper of the vineyards. My own vineyard I have not kept. Make known to me 
O you who my being loves, where you feed your flock, where you make it rest anon. For why should I be as one who is veiled beside the flocks of your companions? Right. Okay. So let me uh, jump to uh, chapter 6. You know, where she describes herself as dark, meaning tanned, not not black, okay? Now, this would contradict what you just read if it's literally be taken that she was black or dark. So, uh, Song of Songs 6.1, Whither is thy beloved gone, O thou fairest among women? And, of course, fairest means white, okay? Whither is thy beloved turned aside, that we may seek him with thee? My beloved has gone down into his garden to the beds of spices to feed in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He feedeth among the lilies. Let me scroll down here. Thou art beautiful, O my love, as Tirzah, comely as Jerusalem, terrible as an army with banners. Let me look up what the uh, Ayam. Okay. Uh, frightful. Well, I guess maybe she's so beautiful he's awestruck, <laughs> right? Awestruck. Verse 5, turn away thine eyes from me, for they have overcome me. Thy hair is as a flock of goats. Oh, that's a lovely poem here. That appear from Gilead. Thy teeth are as a flock of sheep, which go up from the washing, where, of course, teeth are white whereof every one beareth twins and is not one barren among them. Of course, Deuteronomy 28 says, if we obey Yahweh's laws, we won't have infertility, we won't have any kind of disease, etc., etc. Verse 7, as a piece of pomegranate are thy temples within thy locks. And here's verse verse 8, there are threescore queens and fourscore concubines and virgins. Alma. Here it's translated as virgins without number. Back to you. So let me go to Psalms 68, verses 25 and onward. The singers went in front, the player on instrument after them. Among them were the young women playing okay. tambourines. And the, tambourines, again, yeah. tambourines. And the notes is made in here, same. Bless Elohim in the assemblies of Yahweh from the fountain of Israel. There is Binyamin, the smallest, their ruler, the leaders of Jehuda, their company, the leader of Sebalon, the leader of Naphtali. Your Elohim has commanded your strength. Be strong, O Elohim. This you have worked out for us. Okay, so... Yeah, so the word there was young maiden? Yes. Okay, so there Alma is translated as young maiden. Okay, now Proverbs 30, 19. And the way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a woman. Okay, I don't have, um, this is the Catholic bishop's version here. And it doesn't say whether this woman is an Alma or not, okay? So I I assume it's translated from Alma, uh, because I'm reading from the Catholic bishop's version of their Bible, okay? So so it can be translated either as virgin or maiden or young woman, 
But uh, they're definitely wrong when they say that a young married woman. No, if she's married, then she's not a maiden anymore, okay? All right, back to you. Yes, okay. So, in each uh, case, the Hebrew word Alma explicitly means, quote, virgin, and unquote, or implies it. In each case, Alma always referred to an unmarried woman of good reputation. Go. Of good reputation. Now, yeah. now, this contradicts what they said in the first paragraph, where, well, let me read it, but instead refers to a young woman recently married. Yeah, that's a contradiction. That's an, uh, what is yeah. it, oxymoron. There you go. Okay. Um, it is never used to refer to a married uh, woman in Scripture. Okay. Um, in Genesis 20, 24, verses 43, the word Alma is used for Rebecca, Isaac's further bride. The passage also records that she was a young girl and that, quote, no man had touched her. And ah, quote. okay. Now, okay. Now, remember in Genesis 3.15, that whole scenario from Genesis 3.1 to 3.15, the word touch has sexual connotations. Okay? Yes. All right. Back to you. And this was from 24, verses 16. Right. In Exodus 2, verses 8, Alma describes the infant Moses' older sister, Miriam. Uh-huh. In okay. Psalm 68, verses 25, Alma describes maiden being uh, courted, courted while yeah. in Proverbs 30, verses 19, Alma is used to suggest the mystery of marriage and procreation a virgin giving herself to a man. In Songs of Songs 1, verses 3 and 6, verses 8, the Hebrew word Alma is applied to virgin of the royal court as opposed to a woman who are sexually experienced. Okay. So uh, there's no debate uh, as to what it really means. It means, first of all, an unmarried woman, young unmarried woman. Well, of course, we can apply to an older woman too. But uh, definitely the uh, uh, unmarried, okay, and in uh, an ancient culture, uh, unmarried pr uh, implies virginity, I would say 99.99% of the time. All right, let's continue. Rabbinic Judaism maintains the word Bethula right. is the Hebrew word for, quote, virgin, and unquote. It is true that this word is also used for a girl or young woman. And in the passage about the young Rebecca, both Bethula and Alma are used. Bracket. See Genesis 24, verses 16. Bethula, 24, verses 43, equal Alma, and no quote, and no bracket. However, while Bethula may refer to a young girl who is a virgin, it is also used in the Old Testament scriptures to refer to a young married uh, or a young sexually active woman, as it, it is in Joel 1, verses 8. Bracket. Okay, now that's Bethula. We're talking about Bethula, not Alma. Okay? Yeah. Bethula is found at least 50 times in Scripture. End of bracket. Most translation in English render Joel 1 verses 8 as, quote, mourn as a virgin, bracket, Bethula, end of bracket, bride in sackcloth, mourns for the bridegrooms of her youth, end of quote. Accepting the revised Jewish rendering of the word Bethula and adding the word quote bride, bride the typo. and a quote which does not appear in the Hebrew text. 
But this translation does not make sense in the context of the passage bridegrooms uh, have brides, but brides are no longer virgins. A young girl will mourn her bridegroom, but if it is in the virgin who mourns, she is mourning her uh, betrothed and not her uh, bridegroom. If this passage were referring to the betrothed young woman and not a young woman whose marriage was already consummated, the Hebrew would have been Bethula Meorasha. Bracket, the book of Isaiah, Edward Young, volume 1, page 288. Also, in Aramaic translations of scripture. Uh, audio difficulties, folks, so let me pick it up. Oh, you're back. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I lost you there for a minute. Okay, oh, okay. anyway, it's Basula Meorasa. Yeah. Okay. So. Also, in Aramaic translation of scriptures, the Aramaic equivalent to Bethula refers to a married woman. Isaiah did not use the word Bethula because he did not want to confuse his readers. Amen. Isaiah's prophetic statement clearly um, intends us to understand that, quote, the, uh, the virgin, right, and no quote, um, with child is the force of the sign uh, connected to the quote house of David and unquote bracket Isaiah 7 verse 13. The use of the plural uh, quote you and unquote in verses 14 indicate that the sign is not just for King Az. The use of the word ha alma quote the virgin and unquote and not quote a virgin and unquote are deliberate. This virgin is a woman chosen by God to bear a son who will be assigned to the house of David and all of Judah. Okay, so let me point out here that the rabbis of Judaism, including the Masoretic rabbis, insist that uh, it's not a virgin, that it's just a young woman. But uh, now we've, we're discovering by analyzing other scriptures as well and by the, the um, definite article, the, as opposed to the indefinite article, uh, that we're talking about a very specific virgin, a, sp a very specific woman. And it just goes without saying that in Israelite culture, and even you know, much after the uh, Old Testament, a woman had to be a ver virgin to get married, okay? And, and those, those marriages were usually arranged anyhow, okay? As was the marriage between Joseph and Mary, okay? Please continue. Yes, the prophetic signs ends with the prophecy that the child born from, quote, the virgin, and unquote, will be called Emmanuel, quote, God with us, and unquote. The promise Jesus made to his disciples in Matthew 28, um, 20b, quote, and look, I am with you, bracket, plural, plural, and the bracket, always see to the end of times, end of quote. With the end of the giving of the prophetic sign of King Ahaz, Isaiah then turns to his own little son, who he has brought with him as God commanded him, quote, go out with your son, Shir Yashub, and meet Ahaz, bracket, Isaiah 7, verses 3, and a bracket. He then answers King Ahaz of Judah, fears concerning invasion of the combined forces of King Rason 
uh, of Aram and King Pekah of Israel by revealing Yahweh's message of encouragement. Bracket. Isaiah verses 7 and um, verses 1 to 9. And, no bracket. and they refer to Yahweh here. Yes, absolutely. Indicating his son, Isaiah uh, tells the king that in a short period of time, before his little son is old enough to discern between good and evil, Judah, Judah's enemy will no longer be a threat. So uh, boys can be virgins too, right? <laughs> okay. All right, please continue. Um, in defense of the prophecy of Isaiah 7, verses 14, being applied to St. Matthew to Mary and Jesus in Matthew 1, verses 23, the Protestant leader Martin Luther ple- pledged to uh, pay a hundred pieces of gold, bra- bracket, golden, and a bracket, to the scholar who could uh, show any passage where Alma referred to a married woman in the ah, Old Testament. Very good. So far, to my knowledge, no one has uh, collected on the pledge. Bracket. The book of Isaiah, Edward Young, Volume 1, page 287, note 35, end of bracket. For more information on the use of Bethula and Alma C, the book of Isaiah, Edward Young, Volume 1, Edermann's oh. Publishing, 1996, pages okay. 286 to 288. So it's the Jews who brought into question the translation in Isaiah 7.14 of virgin, okay? And there's a lot of uh, modern translations of the Old Testament where they have young woman instead of virgin, okay? Excuse me. All right. Okay, now, all right, so let's go now to the Tetragrammaton found in the earliest copies of the Septuagint. Oh, you know what? Actually... There are a couple of, uh, if I have the right one, no, this is a, uh, yeah, so let's go to the other tetragrammaton found in the earliest copies of the Septuagint. Now we're going to make distinctions here between the Masoretic text, which is the Jewish redaction of the Hebrew Old Testament with all kinds of hanky-panky going on, the vowel points, the uh, diacritical points which actually refer to chanting that the, the 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 Jews chanted these verses and so they would make a mark uh, at the end of what they consider a verse so there's all kinds of diacritical marks made by the rabbis that don't belong there that are not in the original Hebrew people need to understand that the Masoretic text is a, a totally corrupted version of the Hebrew Old Testament, okay? And we need the Septuagint to check against the Masoretic text, and we also need the Dead Sea Scrolls to check against the uh, the, uh, the Masoretic text. Very important that we have something to check against the Masoretic text because it is the Jewish corruption of the Old Testament, okay? So, uh, okay, let me take this portion of it because we're going to do a couple of... Uh, segments on this website. This is from Elia Ministries, and the title of the article is Tetragrammaton Found in Earliest Copies of the Septuagint. Below, now, th- this is relevant to the Masoretic text because the Jews have scratched out the Tetragrammaton and replaced it with L-O-R-D. Okay? Now, why would a Hebrew... 
want to scratch out the name of Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton, and replace it with L-O-R-D. Why would the Jews want to do that? Well, they don't want us using the sacred names. That's why. And that's why they influenced the King James Translation Committee to replace Yahweh with Lord. Below are two examples of where the Tetragrammaton has been found in ancient copies of the Septuagint. Septuagint is a 3rd to 2nd century B.C. Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. The below fragments are evidence that the Septuagint originally contained the name Yahweh. Okay? So the Septuagint, which was composed in Greek by 72 Judahite scribes, not Jewish scribes, Judahite scribes, contained the name of Yahweh. And there's a couple of, of uh, you know, images here where you can see the name of Yahweh going from right to left in Paleo-Hebrew while the Greek text is left to right. So they revered the name of Yahweh so greatly that they refused to translate the name into Greek. That's what this means, folks. Okay? The Septuagint is by far the better version of Scripture, and it was the version of Scripture used by the, the apostles, by Josephus, by many others in translating, in, 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 you know, in recording the New Testament. Whenever they quoted the Old Testament, the only uh, version they had was, in fact, the Septuagint. So it amazes me, Michael, that modern theologians don't recognize this. They but, don't get it. No, I guess also the problem is because who, who are the one at those uh, seminars? Who are the educators? Who made the programs? It was Jews, and they want to hide it. So they're not taught, taught about this. Yes, absolutely. I guess it's one of the cases, but then why the pastors themselves have no interest to study this? That is beyond, beyond me. I don't yeah. understand that. I'm not the pastor. I'm just doing this for, yeah, for well, interest. Yeah, they follow the Jewish lead, which is a huge mistake, right? The Septuagint was the original uh, document that Jesus and the apostles and all the people around them quoted from when they quoted the Old Testament. And that's a fact. Okay, let's continue. Because the, the Masoretic text wasn't finished until 1000 AD. So it's 1200 years older. Uh, yeah, the Septuagint is 1200 years older than the Septuagint. I mean, the uh, Masoretic. Okay. Let's continue. The first is an ancient fragment. This is one uh, I just mentioned looking at the Paleo-Hebrew Yahweh. Dated between 50 BC and 50 CE AD. If this dating is correct, it would have been written near the time of Yahshua's ministry. The name of these fragments are Nahal Hever Minor Prophets because they are fragments of Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, and Zechariah found in the Nahal Hever cave south of Qumran. We're talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls here, folks. The Tetragrammaton is indicated with a large black arrow. Let me scroll down here. Notice that the Tetragrammaton is written in the ancient Hebrew, that is Paleo-Hebrew, script. Here is another example of an ancient fragment of the Septuagint dating to the first century A.D. This fragment contains parts of Job, 42, and uh, if people in the chat room want to bring this up, you can clearly see Yahweh in Paleo-Hebrew right to left, while the Greek is left to right. There are other early fragments that also contain the sacred name in like manner. 
According to scholars, no copies of the Septuagint dated before the mid-2nd century A.D. substitutes the Tetragrammaton Yahweh's name uh, with Kyrios. Okay, so after the or during the time when the New Testament was being composed, and it was being composed in Greek and 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 uh, sorry Hebrew, because we have found Hebrew uh, copies of Matthew and other books. But uh, they gradually replaced the, the Tetragrammaton in the Greek scriptures, the New Testament scriptures, with Kyrios. Okay? So, uh, the meaning of Tetragrammaton, if you'll click on that link and go there, please. If you've got that. Uh, uh, okay, are we still having audio difficulties here? No, sorry. Okay, okay. <laughs> I was muted. <laughs> okay, all right. So, so, the Messiah and the tet- tet- Tetragrammaton. Yeah, the meaning of the Tetragrammaton. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. I'm there. Okay. So, do you want me to read it? Yeah. Yeah. So, the meaning of the Tetragrammaton. This is for Hebrew letters. Yod, He, Vav, and He, called the Tetragrammaton. The four characters are the four Hebrew letters that corresponds to y- Yahweh and are trans, uh, transliterated I-A-U-E, or Yahweh. So it's Yod-H-W-E-H first. Yeah, because the, the sacred name can be spelled out in vowels. Of course, that's much later, because the, the Hebrew is not in vowels. Okay, it's only in, in consonants. But uh, th- those are, w- are letters in the Hebrew that substitute both as vowels and consonants, which is common in, in even in, like in French. We, the word we, it sounds like W-E in English, but it's uh, O-U-I, I think it is. <laughs> Three vowels, okay? So that's not unusual. All right, please continue. Yahweh is the name of the Almighty Father in heaven that people commonly call, quote, the Lord, end unquote, or, quote, God, end unquote. The reason we see, quote, Lord, end unquote, and, quote, God, end unquote, in our Bibles is because of a Jewish tradition that the name Yahweh was not to be spoken for fear that the name be blasphemed. Oh, yeah. that it might be pronounced, right? Yeah. For fear, or that we might pronounce it, okay? Yeah, so, so we- yeah, go ahead. Yes, we get his protection and we get his blessing. That's what they Amen. don't want. That's right. That's exactly um, right. However, the scriptures declares that his name should be exalted, bracket, i.g., Psalms 68, verses 4, in the bracket. And the third co- uh, commandment uh, forbids this practice. The preface yeah. of some Bibles would admit why they change his name. Nearly all uh, will cite traditions and fam- familiarity as the reason. This, I believe, is wrong. Sometimes people pronounce the Tetragrammaton as Jehovah, but Jehovah could never be the right pron- pronunciation. On this website, the name of Yahweh is used in reference to the Heavenly Father because in the scripture we are told to praise, exalt, bless, love, teach, preach, anoint, assemble, believe, Give thanks, honor, and call on his name. Hundreds of times in the Old Testament, we are you know, advised to use his name. Of course, we are not to take his name as vain, but the Jews teach something that's totally unscriptural, namely that his name is too sacred to be pronounced. But the Bible does not say that anywhere. 
okay? And so, okay, we're already at the top of the hour. This first hour has flown by like lightning. And so let me go, and uh, we'll take a quick break, folks. And let's see, what kind of music should Well, we've been doing really well. In fact, this is the perfect song for our discussion right now. Jonathan David Brown, Call Upon the Name. Troubles may 
<laughs> from the trouble you got yourself in. Boy, we're getting, are we in trouble today, Michael? All right. All right. We're, we're back. And, uh, uh folks, uh, I just want to quickly announce because we are simulcasting on Speak Free Radio. And I want to point out all of the books available and uh, other other artifacts available at Money Tree Publishing. Uh, in black and white, there's a black man who's figured out who the Jews are. The Jews are the problem, not us, not the white people. The myth of German villainy, Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf. Uh, Henry Ford's The International Jew, The War Against Whites. Come on, where's my book? Oh, Jews Are the Problem. Okay, another good book. And here we go, The Great Impersonation, How the Antichrist Had Deceived the Whole World, Exposing the Lies of History, and, of course, all the secret Masonic victory of World War II, all kinds of good stuff, Communism by the Back Door, very, very good stuff available at Money Tree Publishing. I also want to point out, that on the front page of Eurofolk Radio, there is a, a video, a post called the Goyim No. And I, in fact, uh, by Lucas Gage, a video, he, he's a guy who just figured out that there's no such thing as a good Jew. <laughs> his, his dealings with the Jews prove it. And he says that, that the Jews who pretend to be nice to you uh, they're just waiting for a chance to stab you in the back. And he has figured this out because he makes a very important point that the, the, there's not a Jew in the world who contradicts all of the anti-whiteism that's going on in the world. There's one's behind it. He's, he's figured this out. So there are more and more people figuring out the fact that the Jews, number one, are not Israelites, and number two, are the greatest enemies of all of humanity that have ever existed. And people are beginning to wake up to this fact, folks, as we've been preaching here on Eurofolk Radio. That is the fact. You cannot accept Khazars, the Ashkenazis, as Israelites, nor can you accept Edomite Jews, who are the ones who were the scribes and Pharisees that put our Messiah to death. You cannot accept these people as God's chosen people. So people are waking up to this. I hope that Eurofolk Radio has been influential in teaching this to the world. Okay? So let's continue with where, where are we at? <laughs> um, now we have read this this one. I don't know. Oh. Should we start some new article now? Or is it some more pages there? Or should we take – you have some more articles. Okay. Uh, right. Uh, so let's see. Uh, there's another study here. Pentecost – Shavuot, its meaning and significance is part of this same website. So let me go there. And I really love this site because it uses the sacred names. And it's getting more and more common, folks. More and more people are beginning to use the sacred names outside of identity even. It's fantastic. I love it. So, and he says, the more I study Yahweh's feasts, and those are anybody who practices the Jewish calendar is practicing a Babylonian calendar. You can go online and search it out for yourself. Every encyclopedia will tell you that the Jewish calendar is Babylonian because they reference the new moon. And there's not, not, not one single reference in the Bible to a new moon, even though you'll see the translation. This is another way in which the Masoretes have fooled us into accepting their Jewish Babylonian calendar 
in place of Yahweh's and Enoch's solar calendar, okay? So the more you study the Masoretic text and realize the horrible translations that the King James has been subject to, you will simply be in awe, right? Anyway, he says, the more I study Yahweh's feast, the more I stand in awe of how there are layers upon amazing layers of spiritual revelation in these observances. By the time you are finished reading this study, I think you will agree that Yahweh's word is truly remarkable, and it cannot be possible that the Bible we have in our hands is anything other than a supernaturally inspired document. Amen to that. Shavuot is what this feast is called in the Hebrew language, while the term Pentecost is from the Greek. In our language, it is commonly called the Feast of Weeks. Now, in in the solar calendar, it's really easy to calculate Pentecost from the uh, Passover Sabbath. It tells us just count fifty days from the. That's the exact language in the scriptures. If count fifty days, you get to Pentecost, and from the day after uh, the uh, Passover Sabbath, you count forty-nine days. So you have a double witness of how to get to Pentecost. You can't do that with the Jewish calendar. You can't do that with any lunar solar calendar or a lunar calendar because they depend upon the moon, which is not figured into you know the, the biblical calendar. And you can't you can't count fifty days from the Passover Sabbath if your your months are twenty nine and a half days. You can't do that. All right, that that alone will tell you there's something wrong with the Jewish calendar. But nevertheless, the world accepts the, the Jews' word that they are practicing the Hebrew calendar. They are not. And it, it stands to reason also that the Dead Sea Scrolls also state that the Israelites practice an exclusively solar calendar. Now, I have to stress here, Michael, it's very important for especially new people to understand that the Dead Sea Scrolls are based on the Old Testament. So we have another witness besides the Septuagint against the Masoretic text. Okay? And both the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the, the only totally preserved book in the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls is the book of Isaiah, which is great because it has all the prophecies of Messiah in there, okay, which the Jews deny. Okay? So uh, we're, we're going to lay it hard on the Jews and their corruption of the Hebrew Old Testament. That's what the Masoretic text is, folks. It's a corruption of the Hebrew Old Testament. And unfortunately, the Judeo-Christian world simply accepts it as gospel that the Jews have d- delivered a an uncorrupted version of the Hebrew to us. No, they have not. Okay, let's continue. Pentecontum means 50. How are you going to get a count of 50 when your months are 29 and a half days? Actually, what they do is they do 29 and 30, 29 and 30, 29 and 30. And that's how, and then they still, they still are 10 days short of the actual solar year. So every once in a while, they have to add a 13th month. There's nothing in scripture about a 13th month. Absolutely nothing. So what distinguishes us in Christian identity from the rest of the entire world of biblical scholarship is that we take the Bible at its word. We do what it says, not what we want to believe it says. We do what it says, okay? And that's the difference between identity and Judeo-Christianity. The Judeo-Christians have been fooled by the rabbinate to accept their version of the Old Testament. And fortunately, we have the Septuagint as a check. 
against the Masoretic text. Very important. You understand that the Masoretic text is not original. It's not original, folks. Okay. And Pente- uh, Pentecoste is 50 in the feminine form. Therefore, we have Pentecost. And Shavua, the term in Hebrew, also is feminine. I think that is why they had it in the feminine form in the Greek language. Shavua is the term week in Hebrew. Shavuot is feminine plural and means weeks. So if you have been calling Shavuot, let's say let's try saying Shavuot. The ot has the accent in most Hebrew words. The accent is on the final syllable or the next to last syllable, as in Isaiah, Jedidiah, right? Judah, okay. So, but that can vary. So that that's our terms, and Shavuot means weeks. Sometimes when the first day of the week comes, you will hear the Jewish people say, Shavuot Tov, that means good week. And that is what they often say as Shabbat ends and a new week begins. To properly understand this feast, we have to have some understanding of Passover, as I was just trying to explain, because you can't get to Pentecost except by 50 or 49, as clearly indicated in Scripture, okay? So so we have to have some understanding of Passover, at least as far as timing goes. Deuteronomy 16, 8 through 9. Six days shall ye eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a sacred assembly to Yahweh, your mighty one. You shall do no work on it. Verse 9, you shall count seven weeks for yourself. Begin to count seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the grain. Okay, what's the definition of a week, Michael? Definition of a week, uh, seven days. Seven days, there you go. Not six and a half, not seven and a quarter. It's seven days, people. And it's seven weeks, seven times seven, from the Passover Feast of, uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread, okay, to Pentecost. Forty-nine. Forty-nine. There you go. Okay. That's how simple the solar calendar is. All you have to do is count. Okay. So let's continue. So we see here during this week of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we have a special way of counting seven weeks after this Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the Hebrews today call it the counting of the Omer. The Omer is in reference to the Omer of barley that was offered to Yahweh on the day of first fruits. Now, another important thing people have to understand. The Jews do not farm. Never. The Jews know nothing about farming. Okay? They, they hate it. They regret it as something of low class. So That's right. That's in their Talmud. That's the lowest for that's the lowest occupation according to the Jews. That is farming. Okay? So they despise farming, folks. They despise more proof that they're not the Israel of the Old Testament. Okay. So and in because the modern have, world. Yeah. Go yeah. Ahead. And, and they have a very hard problem, I guess, also with physical labor. And farming is All very right. physical that, labor. So that, that is hard yeah. for them. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's much harder than counting money. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> counting, counting shekels, right? Counting shekels is easy unless it's gold. In that case, it's very heavy. All right. So the Omer is in reference to the Omer of barley that was offered to Yahweh on the day of first fruits. So this is an agricultural calendar. That's why it begins on these, the spring equinox, and the, the, seven, the four seasons are all 
uh, 13 weeks, 13 times 7 is 49. And uh, sorry, wait, wait a minute. Uh, 30 plus 30 is 60 plus 30, 91. That, uh, I had to remember, remind myself what it means. So you have four quarters of 91 days, which gives you 364 days, which is the Enoch calendar. The Enoch calendar. Something happened along the way when Enoch composed the calendar. There's uh, two references in the Old Testament where the sun stood still for one full day. And there's another reference where the sun stood still for a quarter of a day. Well, there's, there's your uh, day and a quarter that has skewed our calendars. Every calendar must conform to the spring equinox. Otherwise, if you plant two weeks too early, as the Jews would do if they'd farmed, uh, <laughs> that would affect your crop. It, it, it might not ripen it at all, okay? Or if you plant two weeks too late, as the Catholics would do, because they, they start their calendar uh, two weeks after, or the, the full moon after the spring equinox, is that they're all screwed up, totally screwed up. So from the time you begin to put the sickle to the grain, what he is talking about here, well, they began to harvest barley around the time of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Okay. When is Passover? It's exactly 14 days after the spring equinox. They would harvest barley. This is a picture of barley right here. It doesn't show it on this uh, slide here. And when the barley was mature enough, they would take the sickle, which is this instrument right here. You know what a sickle looks like. Nice. This is a, yeah, right? Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yahshua is going to use a sickle to harvest, to harvest the evildoers of the world. He's the grim reaper, folks. Don't let anybody kill, uh, kid you. He is the Grim Reaper. When he returns, he's gonna. Uh, <laughs> there's gonna be a wailing and a gnashing of teeth, especially for the Edomites. So this is a relief they found of a wall in stone somewhere in Egypt, and he is using a sickle to harvest barley. And so they would cut the barley down, and then of course they would extract the seeds out of the barley. That's the whole point of it. Can you see a Jew extracting the seeds out of barley? No, no, it's no. too much labor for them. Yeah, it's too much labor. Just give them a sickle and see if they can use it. <laughs> yeah, see if they can go out in the, in the field and actually cut down some barley. No Jew has ever done that in their whole life, okay? <laughs> then with the seeds, if they were dry enough, they would grind it into powder to make flour. Or if it was still a little bit wet inside, they would dry it out by roasting it over a fire and then just eat the kernels raw or actually cooked, roasted that way. But that's a barley plant. So the feasts had significance in that they were connected to the harvests. Okay? And that Hebrew calendar is connected to the harvests, ladies and gentlemen, not to the new moon. And that was part of the importance of the feast. <clears throat> and so during the harvest time, it is really a time to give thanks to Yahweh. He provided food from the ground, right? Maybe we're not so connected to that anymore. That is true. You know, who who pays it? It's it's the Jews with their corp, big pharma corporations and Monsanto and their hybrid seeds. We leave it to the Jews to do that, don't we? Okay. Yeah. Are we disconnected or are we disconnected? Oh, man. <laughs> okay. Yeah, right? We mostly, if we go to Walmart, see a pretty picture maybe of a farm or something on there on the wall. But that is about the closest we get to a farm for most of us. Maybe some of us will have a garden in their backyard, but very few people will grow barley in their backyard. 
it seems to me that we lose something in that because we don't realize the work that goes into the food and the animals that died as a result of the food that we are eating. So you go out and grab a hamburger and not give it a second thought. However, it is a little different when you do slaughter the animal yourself. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 8 and 9, it says, quote, Six days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a sacred assembly to Yahweh, your Elohim. You shall do no work on it. You shall count seven weeks for yourself. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the grain, which was the day after the Passover, the, uh, sorry, Passover Sabbath. Then you shall keep the Feast of Weeks to Yahweh, your Elohim, with tribute and a free will offering from your hand. Yahweh does not force us to do anything. Free will offering. Folks, this is important stuff. We do have free will. The Bible clearly says so. Okay, so uh, why don't you pick it up from there? Because this section is longer than I thought. Yeah, it was pretty long. Uh, yeah. So let's see. Should I start from it is from Deuteronomy 16, verses 8? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, um, quote, Six days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a, a sacred assembly to Yahweh, your Elohim. You shall do no work on it. Um, quote, You shall count seven weeks for yourself. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time you begin. Bracket to put, and a bracket, uh, the sickle to the grain. Um, 10. Quote, then you shall keep the feast of weeks to Yahweh, your Elohim, with the tribute of a free will offering from your hand, which you shall give as Yahweh, your Elohim, blesses, uh, blesses you. 11. Quote, you shall rejoice before Yahweh, your Elohim, you and your son and your daughters, your maidservant and your female servant, the Levite, who is uh, within your gates, the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are among you at the place where Yahweh, your Elohim, chooses to make his name abide. Okay, what verse was it that had the word maid? Maiden? Because I, I'm wondering if that's going to be translated from Alma or Bethua. Yeah, it is in the verse 11, 16 verse 11. Okay, let me look that up and see what we find there. Okay, please continue. Yes, this was Jerusalem, a rejoicing feast, just as Tabernacles was a rejoicing feast. In Leviticus chapter 23, verse 6, it says, um, And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread to Yahweh. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. Seven. On the first day you shall have a holy con um, convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. But you shall offer an offering made by fire to Yahweh for seven days. The seventh day shall be holy uh, convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. And no quote. Okay, all right. Let me go to Deuteronomy 16.11. And thou shalt rejoice before Yahweh thy Elohim, thou and thy son, which is Ben, and thy daughter, which is Bath, and thy manservant is... Ebed, and thy maidservant is Ama, no El, Ama, and the Levite that is within thy gates, and the stranger which is Ger, 
which is almost always a kinsman, uh, not necessarily living within your community, and the fatherless and the widow that are among you in the place in which Yahweh thy God hath chosen to place his name there. Okay, well, we're finding, we found out that the name of Yahweh is contained in the Greek Septuagint in the original Hebrew. All right? The name of Yahweh is, in fact, it's all over the planet. Wherever our ancestors roamed, including America, we find the name of Yahweh in Paleo-Hebrew. We have the, uh, the Ten Commandments stone just south of Albuquerque, New Mexico, containing the Ten Commandments with the name of Yahweh inscribed in Paleo-Hebrew. Back to you. Yes, so uh, this is referring to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Leviticus 23, verses 9. And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, um, 10, quote, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, When you come into the land which I give to you, and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruit of your harvest to the priest. Yeah, when when have the Jews ever done this? (laughs) (laughs) Right? When have they ever done this? Never. Please continue. This was his introduction to Israel, that when they came into the land, immediately they were uh, to take the chef, uh, sheaf to the priest. Right. Um, Leviticus 23, verses 11. He shall wave the sheaf before Yahweh to be accepted on your behalf. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Okay, I want to make another point here. Because our people have a tradition called spring cleaning. Yes. Okay. Where does that tradition come from? It comes from Passover when we had to clean the leaven out of our cupboards. Right? Yep. But we clean That's instead of our neighbors. That, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, but we clean our yeah, neighbors instead yeah. on those days. That's a tradition. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> oh, I, I want that sourdough bread. <laughs> right? Okay. Yeah. The, the, again, the, the Jews don't have such a tradition. Oh, they may get rid of their leaven, but uh, you know, unless, unless they have servants, they don't clean their houses, right? So again, uh, this is more proof that we are Israel. That tradition of spring cleaning comes from the Bible, comes from right here, Leviticus 23, 6 through 11. Please continue. And that was a command. And they would actually take the sheaf of barley and they would wave it before Yahweh. Quote, now when you come into the land, and quote, notice going back to Deuteronomy 16, quote, count seven weeks for yourself. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the grain, and quote. Okay, uh, seven weeks, 49 days. This is during the unleavened bread feast. You be- uh, begin your count. And so we f- uh, fast forward here and see and we see where it says, bracket, Leviticus 23, verses 11, um, quote, On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it, and quote, When is it the time that you would wave this sheaf before Yahweh? It would be the day after the Sabbath that occurs during Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread. Right. Yeah, and uh, hold on, because Swamp Fox says in the chat room, uh, uh, concerning the, the sons of Cain, when thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. That's why they don't farm. There you go, folks. Okay? 
It all goes back to Genesis 3.15. Back to you. Yeah, and it also tells that they can't do this because if they can't farm, they cannot do this before Yahweh. Right. So they yeah. can't do it. Oh, and that reminds me. Uh, I'll see if I can find that a passage in Josephus where he talks about hybridization, that, that he says that Cain's offering was actually uh, an unnatural offering. Okay, uh, but please continue. And I also want to uh, tell people we, we do encourage call-ins. So on, on Speak Free Radio, just go to speakfreeradio.com forward slash bloodlines, and you will be put into our StreamYard uh, page here. And uh, you know, I'll try to watch that to see if anybody's joining us there. But please continue while I look for that verse in Josephus. Mm-hmm. But notice it also says, Quote, when you come into the land, and unquote, you are going to reap its harvest and you are going to bring that sheaf in. And so that is what they did. In Joshua chapter 5 and verses 10, it says, uh, Joshua 5 verses 10, now the children of Israel uh, uh, camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at uh, twilight on the plains of Jericho. This should be, uh, quote, between the evenings, end of quote. Uh, Joshua 5, verses 11. And they ate uh, of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover, unleavened bread and okay. parched grain on the very, very same day. Okay, so uh, what I want to say about that is the book of Exodus, you have to do some real digging in the book of Exodus to find this out. But the Hebrew feast day calendar was not put into effect until Joshua and the Israelites invaded the land of Canaan. That's what it's talking about right there. So when they invade the land of Canaan, they will eat the produce of the land. Okay? And that begins the Hebrew feast day calendar for the first time. Uh, I have research that to suggest that's 1406 B.C., okay? And exactly 70 jubilees, that's 70 times 7, right? I mean, sorry, 70 times 49, that adds up to 2024. So the feast of, um, what is it, for the fall feast is trumpets. Then uh, we have the feast of atonement. So on the Feast of Atonement 2024 is exactly 70 jubilees from the day that the Israelites invaded Canaan land. Folks, this has got to be a very significant day because we've been teaching here that the fall feast, the Feast of Trumpets, is the announcement of the second coming. Now, it may not be 2024, but it's telling us, get ready Get ready, because he's coming soon. Okay, we're going to do more shows about that in the future. Now, I did find the Antiquities of Judah. This is Flavius Josephus, translated by William Whiston. Chapter 1, verse 52. Adam and Eve had two sons. The elder of them was named Cain, which name, when it is interpreted, signifies a possession. The younger was Abel, which signifies sorrow. Why? Why would that signify sorrow, Michael? What's, the, what's the, the the elder one in representing sorrow? Oh, is it yeah, that Cain? No, uh, that's Abel. Abel. Yeah, that, yeah, Abel. Yeah. yeah, of course. Yeah, maybe. Well, he was given that name by Adam and Eve, right? 
maybe they had a foreshadowing of what might happen to him, right? Certainly, excuse me, certainly Yahweh did, okay? They also had daughters, but it's not clear when they had the daughters. Now the two brethren were pleased with different courses of life. For Abel, the younger, was a lover of righteousness and believing that Yahweh God was present at all his actions, he excelled in virtue and his employment was that of a shepherd. But Cain was not only very wicked in other respects, but was wholly intent upon getting greedy. He's a greedy Jew. And he first contrived, he first contrived, underline the word contrived, to plow the ground. He slew his brother on the occasion following. They had resolved to sacrifice to God. Now Cain brought the fruits of the earth and of his husbandry. But Abel brought milk and the first fruits of his flocks. Underline first fruits. Cain did not offer first fruits, which is, we're talking about the calendar here. The calendar is already being foreshadowed right here in, in Genesis chapter you know, chapters 3 and 4. Okay? Whence, oh, now here's, here's where it gets really interesting. Abel brought milk. And the sacrifice, now Cain brought the fruits of the earth and of his husbandry, but Abel brought milk and the first fruits of his flocks. But God was more delighted with the latter oblation when he was honored with what grew naturally, underline naturally, of its own accord. What does that imply to you? What what did Cain do? He probably do did he probably did something to hybridize it or did something to to offer to yeah to to not having yeah. it in God's in Yahweh's creation to adulterate it adulterate it to somehow hybridize yeah absolutely so when uh, when he was honored with what grew naturally of its own accord then he was with the the, the invention of a covetous man invention underline the word invention and gotten by forcing the ground, okay? So there's several words here suggested by Josephus that Cain did something unnatural. Now, aren't the Jews the world's most famous hybridizers even today? Yep, that's what they always do. Same yes. now with GMO. When they want them now, they're probably creating GMO people too. So yeah, that's, yes. that's their modus operandi. Yeah, they want amen. to be God. That's right. They want to take the place of God. Absolutely. Again, if you want to join us in the StreamYard chat room, it's uh, StreamYard.com forward slash bloodlines. Okay, so let's go into the ancient synagogue literary source. I just posted it in chat room. I think uh, you know, we really covered this subject pre pretty well, the, uh, the feast days of the true Hebrew calendar. And in this article here, Bible.ca synagogues, Ancient Synagogue Archaeological Literary Sources, Bible, Jesus, Israel, Judea, etc. These are the comments of Justin Martyr, at least the ones uh, that are put up front here. And it says, Justin Martyr of Rome, 150 AD, Ancient Synagogue Literary Sources, Jews Persecuting Christians. Jewish Corruption of the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. Now, they may have tried to, to corrupt the Septuagint as well, but as I said earlier, the reason why the Jews corrupted the Hebrew Old Testament was because 
they could not argue against the Christians who were using the Septuagint at that time. So here is some of the quotes from Justin Martyr. Patristic Apostle Church Father, of course, there's another Catholic site. Christ is King of Israel. Christians are true Israelites. Whoa! I like that interpretation. Quote, ignore your Pharisaic teachers who teach you to curse Christians in your synagogues and your prayers. So you can see that there was this conflict right after they crucified Christ between the Jews and the Christians. Now, some of these Jews were not, not Edomites. They were actually Judahites who did not recognize Yahshua as Messiah. Okay, and they would have fraternized with the Edomite Jews to their discredit. Quote, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Are we not being persecuted today? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. By the same people, the descendants of the scribes and Pharisees and the Masoretes who perverted the scriptures. No, the Jews did not preserve the oracles of God. They perverted the oracles of God. Okay, pick it up from there, because uh, J- uh, Justin Martyr has more to say. But where the article? I can't really... Oh, do, you, okay. do, do you have it in the chat room, or where is it? Yeah, I just put it in the chat I'm sorry, I, I guess I didn't send it to you. Uh, so, uh, Bible, uh, yeah, synagogue. Okay, I found it. Yeah, right. Justin Martyr said it's the bullet points on the left. Mm. Okay. okay, yeah, there. Okay, there I have the, the points. Okay, Justin Martin said, quote, use this honor and curse Christian in your synagogue. Um, and, quote, and all of the house of Israel are uncircumcised in their hearts. Christ is king of Israel, and Christians are the Israelite race. Okay, so Justin Martyr is clearly saying that the early Christians were Israelites, not, not Gentiles. It's another perversion of Scripture in your King James Version. That re- most, most of those instances of Gentile actually referring to Israel, if you read the, the you know, if you do cross-referencing to the Old Testament. Please continue. Um, we from Christ, no, uh, we, we who uh, out uh, of the side of Christ are the true people of Israel. Amen. Amen. Okay, so Justin Martyr realized that we, descendants of Israel, the Christians in the early days, are the Israelite race. Wow. Yes. How many how many Judeo-Christians will tell you this? None. None. Okay. Uh, Jews in their synagogue have cursed it and still do curse those who believe. Yes. And we, from Christ, who begot us in, unto God, are called and are the true sons of God. Of God. Amen. Uh, in amen. your synagogues, you curse Christians and use Gentiles, bracket, as agents, and bracket, to put into effect your curse by killing Christians. There you go. All right. Oh, okay. yeah, they do. It's still happening today, folks. Most Christians don't realize that they are the target of the perfidious Jew through their pharmacia, through the wars that they have created for us to fight against each other, etc., etc. The world is becoming Jew-savvy as we speak, folks. I think there are good days ahead. Please continue. 
Yes, ignore your Pharisaic teachers. Do not scorn the king of Israel as your synagogue officials instruct you to do in your prayers. Okay, now I think what's going on here is because once the Pharisees took over the reins in Judea, they took over all the synagogues, and now you have Pharisees teaching Christians what they should believe, and he's, he's objecting to what these rabbis are teaching. Back to you. Um, ignore your Pharisaic uh, teachers who teach you to curse Christians in your synagogue and your prayers. Um, to our persecutors, we say, quote, you are our brothers and we pray for you that you might experience the mercy of Christ, end of quote. Amen. So, uh, again, this is totally contrary to what the Jews teach. Totally contrary. Okay, so I think, uh, okay, yeah, introduction. Go ahead and do those bullet points. And uh, I might want to flip to the uh, link here, but let's continue with these bullet points under the introduction. Yeah, introduction. Justin said that Pharisees spouted hate speech against Christians in uh, their synagogues. Uh, who, who spouted the hate speech? <laughs> <laughs> it was you who started with it. Yeah, that's right. Two, quote, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins, end of quote. A, Muslims deny Jesus died on the cross. Jews deny Jesus rose from the dead. And atheists deny Jesus ever lived. But they are all in the same spiritual ship, destined for eternal destruction until they believe that Jesus is the risen Messiah. Okay, well, there's no chance for Jews converting. You know, because they're Edomites and they're condemned. Please continue. <laughs> B. Quote, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. End of quote. Is he not uh, asserting that he is the Messiah? Here? Yes, yes he is. Yeah, John Hagee denies that he ever claimed to be the Messiah. <laughs> yeah, but he is a uh, Jewish yeah. Jew. That's right. You're a stooge, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Jew stooge. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So they were saying to him, quote, who are you? And quote, Jesus said to them, quote, what have I been saying to you from the <laughs> beginning? Uh, I have many th things to speak um, and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. And quote, they did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the father. So Jesus said, quote, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing on my own initiative. But okay. I speak these things as the Father taught me. And quote. So when he gets crucified, he's crucified on that tree, you will know who he is. Yeah. Right? And this is basic Christian belief. Yeah. Right? Which the Jews also deny. Because they're the ones who crucified him. They didn't want him to take the, the reins of the kingdom right then and there in 33 AD. All right, please continue. And he who sent me is me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And I'll quote. As he uh, spoke these things, many came to believe in him. And I'll quote. And this is from John 8, verses 24 to 30. Yeah, Brother Eber says all the synagogues became 501c3 Pharisee. <laughs> okay, right. <laughs> Excuse me. All right, please continue. 
just as Muslims today openly preach hatred and destruction of Jews in their mosques, so too the ancient Jews openly preached the identical hatred and destruction to Christians in the first century AD. Um, three, there is a long history of Jews persecuting and hating Christians, starting with the day Jesus began his ministry around 30 AD. Amen. Uh, but of course, we know that this was led by the Edomite Judeans, not by, not by the house of Judah. Okay. These were Edomite Pharisees, although there were a couple of Judahite Pharisees, not many, but they were primarily Edomites, thanks to Herod, who had slaughtered the entire Judahite Sanhedrin somewhere around 30 AD, BC, 30 BC, and replaced them with Edomites. Back to you. Yes, um, there is a long history of Jews persecuting and hating Christians, starting with the day Jesus began his ministry around 30 AD. Four, it was the Jews who expelled the Christians from the synagogue, not the other way around. Right. Okay, so I'm going to flip to this uh, link about uh, Justin Martyr documented Jews corrupting the Septuagint, 150 AD. Now, I don't know, uh, well, he refers to the Tanakh here, corruption of the Tanakh, 150 AD. Justin Martyr dialogue with Trifo the Jew, uh, 84, is that 84 AD? Is that, is that the number 84 about? And he quotes, Scripture cannot be broken, John 10.23. And, of course, we're talking what Scripture could John have possibly been talking about, all right, uh, other than the Old Testament, okay? Right. So Justin Martyr took specific note that the Jews of his day, 150 AD, were changing the text of their old Tanakh, Old Testament, to counter the connection with Jesus Christ and Old Testament prophecy. Folks, we're talking about the Masoretic text here. First, Justin Martyr notes they are making changes to the Greek Septuagint if they had got their grubby hands on it. But since there are thousands of copies in circulation around the world, they gave up on that idea. Of course, they then gave up forever on the Septuagint and moved exclusively to using the Hebrew text. Okay, this gives us a little bit of the history of why the Jews began to corrupt the Hebrew Old Testament. B. Justin Martyr was unaware of, of what of was that the Jews were also making changes to their own Hebrew pre-corrupted Masoretic text in whose sole possession it was. Okay, so we've got Justin Martyr and other witnesses telling us that the Masoretic text is a Jewish corruption of the Hebrew Old Testament. Listen up. You followers of the King James and those who believe that the King James is <laughs> inerrant. Sorry, that's not true. And a Go little ahead. just as a comment to this, as you said, is that they've rewritten. They have rewritten uh, the Septuagint with the with this Masoretic text. I have a biblical verse. I think many of us know it is Jeremiah eight H. Okay. How do you say we are wise and the Torah of Yahweh is with us? But look, the false pen of the scribe has worked falsehood. Amen. Amen. That, that's a premonition of the Masoretic text, folks. Okay. Which, and Yahshua said, you have your own tradition, the traditions of men, 
by which you falsify the Hebrew scriptures. And he said, if you had believed Moses, you would believe me. So they were already in the process of creating their own Jewish traditions to replace the Hebrew tradition. Okay? Most Christians simply do not understand this. All right? So let's continue here. C. Until the second century AD, the Jews universally regarded the Greek translation, or he means here the Judahites and Israelites, universally regarded the Greek translation of the Old Testament as a faithful interpretation of the original Hebrew. Remember, we discussed the word Alma, and the Septuagint translates it with Parthenos, which cannot be anything else than virgin. Philo and Josephus lauded the Greek version. The Sanhedrin authorized it to be read in the Greek-speaking synagogue. This was before, this was 200 years before uh, Herod slaughtered the Judahite Sanhedrin and replaced them with his Edomite friends, okay? And the apostles quoted from it freely. Russell notes that before the second century of the Christian religion, no traces can be found of any controversy as to the differences supposed to exist in the Greek and Hebrew texts of the sacred books. Okay? So it was after the Jewish rabbis realized that they cannot argue against the Septuagint. They gave up trying to do that. And now they had to corrupt the Old Testament as a means to argue against the Christians, the Christian Israelites. Okay? Uh, okay, Russell notes that before the second century of the Christian religion, no traces can be found of any controversy as to the differences supposed to exist in the sacred books. The unanimous Jewish approval of these, uh, and it would have included some Judahites as well, of the Septuagint during the first four centuries of its existence can only be explained if it was a generally accurate translation of the Hebrew text in circulation during that time. So, who started the controversy, Michael? Uh, the Jews started it. Uh, yeah, the, the rabbis, the rabbis, the rabbis of Judaism. Yes. And he puts, yeah, the rabbis, absolutely. What happened in the second century? The Palestinian Jews suddenly began repudiating the original translation from the Greek Old Testament and replacing it with new translations. Okay? The lying pen on the scribe. There you go. By Aquila, Hebrew text in circulation during that time. What happened in the second century? The Palestinian Jews suddenly began repudiating it. Okay? And uh, let's see. Lost my place. Okay. Symmachus, uh, by Aquila, Symmachus, and Theodosian. I assume these are rabbis. We shall explore the reasons for this presently. Primeval chronology restored, revisiting the genealogies of Genesis 5 and 11, Jeremy Sexton. So, so yeah, here are Christians exploring the genealogies. That's what the book, the Bible, is about. The, the title, Genesis, it should be the book of genetics, not the book of Genesis, because it's all about the genealogies of the Adamites versus the Kenites. The descendants of Cain. Yeah. Okay. Everything started there. That's right. If you don't understand the first four, four, five, four or five books, actually the first six books of Genesis, you don't know. It's all about uh, the genealogies and the corruption 
of those genealogies by the fallen angels and by Nachash in chapter 3. Number 2. Justin Martyr's charge... Mar, oh, typo there. Justin Martyr charges the Jews with altering the Greek Septuagint in their synagogues for anti-Christian purposes. Justin Martyr documents this corruption of the Greek Septuagint Bible the Jews had been using now for over 400 years. Now remember, some of these so-called Jews were actually Judahites who did not want to give up the ritual sacrifices. So, But those, those fell away, and now we're talking about Edomite Jews at 150 AD. We're talking exclusively Edomite Jews. So A, so also was the prophecy beginning with the words, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, spoken of him. For if the one of whom Isaiah spoke was not to be born of a virgin, to whom did the Holy Spirit allude when he said, Behold, Yahweh himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a Parthenos shall conceive and bear a son. You know how important it is to have the proper words at your disposal when translating the Bible? If he was to be born of a human intercourse like any other firstborn son, why did God solemnly announce that he would give a sign which is not common to all firstborn? Well, what kind of sign? Every uh, non-miraculous birth that doesn't require a sign, it's natural, right? So the sign has to be something special. And Parthenos, as recorded in the Septuagint, and we found out the term virgin is used in a couple other passages, even in the Masoretic text, that the Jews simply didn't notice those, okay? So, again, we have to have these fallback checks, namely the Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls, to check against the corrupted Masoretic Hebrew folks. We have to have that to truly understand the Bible and translate it correctly. All right, so let's continue here. So, namely, that by means of a virgin's womb, the firstborn of all the creatures, all the Israelites, took flesh and truly became Adamites, was foreknown by the prophet's prophetic spirit before it took place and foretold by him in different ways, as I have explained to you. Indeed, he foretold this in order that, when it did take place, everyone would understand that it all happened by the power and purpose of the creator of the world, just as Eve was made from one of Adam's ribs, and as all living beings were created by the word of God in the beginning. But here, too, you dare to distort the translation of this passage made by your elders at the court of Ptolemy, the Egyptian king, asserting that the real meaning of the scriptures is not as they translated it, but should be read, Behold, a young woman shall conceive. So here, Justin Martyr is contending with the rabbis that their interpretation is false. Okay? As though something of extraordinary importance was signified by a woman conceiving after sexual intercourse. No, there's nothing special about that as all young women except the barren can do. And even the barren can become fertile by the power of God. Samuel's mother, who had been sterile, gave birth to her child by the will of God. The same thing can be said of the wife of the holy patriarch Abraham and of Elizabeth, who bore John the Baptist and of many other women. You must realize that, therefore, that nothing is impossible for Yahweh God to do if he wills it 
and especially when it was prophesied that this would happen, you should not venture to mutilate or misinterpret the prophecies, for in doing so you do harm to God, but not just to God, but to yourselves. Again, Justin dialogue with Trifo, the rabbinical Jew. Okay, so I think, uh, did you reference this verse already? They have also deleted these words from Jeremiah. Did you reference that earlier? Yeah. Okay. So this is a different verse. Okay. Because we're we're close to the end. So let me just continue here. I was as a meek lamb that is carried to be a sacrificial victim. They devised counsels against me, saying, come, let us put wood on his bread and cut him off from the land of the living and let his name be remembered no more. Okay, this is a a prophecy that the Pharisees would try to erase his name, whether you want to call him Jesus or Yahshua or any other name. It is a reference to the Son of God, Yahshua Messiah. Since this passage from the words of Jeremiah is still found in some copies of Scripture in the Jewish synagogues, for it was deleted only a short time ago, and since it is also proved from these words that the Jews planned to crucify Christ himself and to slay him, not the Romans, folks, and since he is shown, as was likewise prophesied by Isaiah, as led like a lamb to the slaughter, and in accordance with this passage, he is marked as an innocent lamb. They are so confused by such words that they resort to blasphemy, unquote. Again, Justin Martyr. Folks. Are you beginning to see the importance of the Septuagint as a countercheck to the Masoretic text? And also, we haven't even discussed the Dead Sea Scrolls yet. We will do that in a future episode. But, Michael, uh, isn't it obvious that Justin Martyr is on our side of the faith? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, Roman, I, I, I didn't know about this, this guy before, before this article. So he has done some interesting digging here. Uh, also, when you have yeah. in, and then an interviewed this Jew that tells him, um, tells him a bit. So interesting. Yeah. Yes, very good. Okay, I think we have about a minute left. So let me do this last bullet point here. Quote: I certainly. Well, actually, there's the music. Uh, so we have run out of time. We may pick this up next week as we continue with our comparison of the Masoretic text versus the Septuagint, and we'll be discussing the Dead Sea Scrolls next week as well. Thank you all for listening. Praise Yahweh, past the ammunition. Thank you, Michael. Oh, yeah, and stay tuned for the Dave. and. Beep.